Please turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, we'll be looking at the, the chapter here, the whole chapter. We've been going over for several weeks now. Old Testament themes, persons, situations, circumstances, things that we find within the New Testament itself. And the purpose of us doing this kind of survey has been for the purpose that when we come to those passages within the New Testament, we want to understand what is in reference. We want to understand why the writer is bringing up this particular person or this particular situation. So if we come back and we go through it, we understand what's happening when we come to those passages We understand even more clearly. This is what happened then, and this is why the writer is bringing it up now. And what that does is to help us in in these New Testament passages that we come to, to understand how to to put everything in context, to put ourselves in in the mindset of the, the author of this particular epistle or this particular book so that we don't misunderstand, so that everything is in context. We're trying to understand the passage as the first readers would have understood it, as the author had intended it. So these passages in the Old Testament, uh, I hope, have been very beneficial to you and, and us going through them the way that we have. The last time we were together, we went over the Day of Atonement back in Leviticus, seeing the significance of what was happening there. And in the work of the high priest and the sacrifices, how all of these things are pointing to our Lord Jesus, and he fulfilled them all. So we're coming now into Numbers chapter 14. What occurs here in chapter 14 of Numbers, as well as some other instances beforehand, really has much to do with things that the writer of Hebrews writes, as far as his warning passages that he gives within that epistle. And as we went through the book of Hebrews, it's been a little while, but as we went through that, it's basically one long sermon. And this particular instance of what we're getting ready to go over is used as a warning passage of what not to do. And that's some interesting things and unique things about the scriptures is it it gives us a whole history of God's people and it tells us the good things, it tells us the bad things, and often those are used to give us as an example this is what you are not to do. And as, a, as an example of that within the New Testament, as we're talking about here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what the Apostle Paul says, which is going to reference back to what we're going over tonight. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat up to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. 
nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the, the ends of the ages have come. These things that we read of, like we are tonight, are things that are now used for our example. As an example to us, do not act in unbelief as these. Um, sometimes we, we look at these passages and we, we see the reaction of the Lord as we're going to see tonight. We see the, re, the response of the Lord and, and, and we look at that and we say, well, surely, obviously the Lord knew these things were going to happen, but his response to it is one that just makes you kind of step back for a moment. We have to go back to these truths that we understand that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He's declared the end from the beginning. His counsel will stand. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Everything that happens within human history is happening according to his sovereign decree. In these instances in which we read of in these narrative passages, in which the Lord responds to the sins of his people, it is demonstrating for us God's displeasure with what is happening. Uh, that he's grieved over what is happening. It, it, it helps us to understand even more so the emotions that our Lord has. He doesn't respond like man. He isn't quick-tempered or any of those other things, but it does show that he is not pleased with what is occurring. When sin happens, God is grieved. And these passages like this help us to understand that. Now, what we're going to read of is a situation in which the people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They have murmured against the Lord a number of times. They have sent, they have approached the, the, the promised land. They have sent spies in to, to scout out everything. They come back with bad results. The people then began to cry out once again and to question the character of the Lord, to... Um, actually desire to stone those that are holding to the truth of what God had said. And so in the Lord's anger, he will now not allow his people to go into the promised land, at least that particular generation. These are things that we can look at and learn what to guard against, specifically unbelief here. This is a passage in which we can understand how we should be responding to the things that occur within our own lives or in the lives of others on a grander scale within the nation. Because it's because of a few people's influence over the many that the many then turn very quickly uh, from the Lord. And many that are there also have to bear the, the suffering, the consequence themselves. And if you just begin to look at some of these things, we can see very clearly how passages like this apply to us even now. We look at the church in America. How should we respond to how the, the church has been caving into the enemy? How should we respond when, when we see people compromising the gospel? How should we respond when it's, when it's watered down so much that the, the gospel itself is really lost? What do we think about the times in which we live when we see so much evil running rampant? And where's the end point? What's going to happen? Well, we don't really know those things. Only those things are in the mind of the Lord. But what doesn't help is for others to have influence over us in order to lead us down 
the path either to compromise who we are in Christ, not by giving in to the things that are going on in the world as far as the evil that's going on, but to compromise who we are in Christ by being influenced in such a way that our character is compromised for following after those that are more in the, I guess, those that really merge their patriotism and Christianity and come up with some kind of a hybrid. We want to maintain the truth of God. We want to maintain our character and who we are in Christ and to do the very things that we find the faithful doing in passages like this when on a national scale there is rebellion. So I pray that this passage would would be an encouragement to us, help us to focus in, reminding us of our purpose here, reminding us of, of, of uh, what, what we have been made in Christ. So let's look at this passage together here in Numbers chapter 14. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we will read the, the whole chapter. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. The scripture says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispose them, and, dispose, and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by an oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray... 
Let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, has followed me fully. I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said will become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil generation, all this evil congregation, who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they, sh they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against me by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. Even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword. Inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. 
Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we again come into your presence. We give you thanks for this portion of your word. We thank you, Father, that it is, it is in your word that we have instruction for our lives of what is pleasing to you, of what is displeasing to you. Father, as we make our way through this portion of your word, I pray that the Spirit of God would, would apply it to our hearts, that we may understand even more of the glory of our Lord, of your holiness, and of our need to be faithful unto you, to demonstrate by our very lives our gratefulness and thanks by living by faith. Father, guide our thoughts. Bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this is one of those situations in which we could rightly say, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is not just the Lord responding to one time in which the people have rebelled against him. He refers in this passage, this has been ten times that the people have done this. That they have constantly murmured, they have constantly complained, they have not followed his instructions. If you begin to count up all those times, you come up to ten times. When they complain about the food, when they complain about the water, when they go out and they gather more more manna than they're supposed to. They go out and they gather it on the Sabbath that they're not supposed to do. There are a number of times there, including this one, that all add up to these ten times in which the Lord then responds with this judgment against this particular generation. But you see how all of this began. Now, mind you, the Lord has demonstrated His glory. He has demonstrated His power, His strength, His might. And he has demonstrated a number of times his grace to this people. We remember in the land of Egypt, the great wonders that the Lord had done, and the people were seeing it. They, they saw the Red Sea part as they're coming out. They're, they're seeing every morning they wake up and the manna is there. They wake up and the quail is there. They see how Moses strikes a rock and water comes out. All of these things that manifest the glory of the Lord. How the Lord is there in, in the pillar of cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night. He is manifesting His presence to this people. They see it. It is not as if there's a, there's a bunch of questions here whether or not the Lord exists or He doesn't exist. He has been demonstrating since they have come out of Egypt His presence among them and His graces among them, His provision for them, His care for them, His faithfulness to them, and carrying out exactly what He said that He would do uh, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's, he's the covenant God. So they approach the time. The, the time has come. They're getting ready to move into the, the promised land. They send out spies. Go spy out the land. They're gone for 40 days. They come back. And here's what we read of back in chapter 13. Beginning of verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them 
and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it, is, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, as this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of, of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone is, is in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So then it begins. The people are weeping. The people are up in arms. Now, think of everything that's happened thus far. And the Lord has continually said and showed and demonstrated that He is with them. The only thing that they have to do is to believe the word of the Lord. He has shown His faithfulness. He has shown His holiness. He has shown His glory. His very name uh, that he, he reveals to Moses is, I am that I am. He repeats uh, more characteristics of His very name. When we looked at the passage in, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, I will... Be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is, he is a compassionate God and he's shown all of those things. And what do they do? Instead of believing the Lord, instead of believing what they knew to be true, they allowed these particular men to sway them and to influence them and to turn them so quickly against the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt. It's almost as if you, you see that reminiscing of what, what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians. I'm so amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Well, this is exactly what they're doing. And think of the things that they begin to do then. They begin to question the very character of God, the intentions of God. He has shown that he is a good God. He has shown that he is a gracious God. And because they feared the people more so than they feared God... Then they begin to question Him. Cast doubt on Him. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? What a slap in the face that this is. It's bad enough all the things that they had done previously. All the complaining that they had done previously. But here, they go even further. They grumble again. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. And that's exactly what happened. They feared the inhabitants of the land more than they feared the Almighty God. So what did they do? They cave into their fear. 
And they basically have allied themselves with the enemies because the enemies spurned the Lord, and now the covenant people of God are doing the same. Now they're influencing each other. They're gathering up a whole crowd now. Dr. Joel Beakey had made mention in this particular passage as the children of Israel come out, there's a lot of people here, some say up to a million, up to two million, as they're coming out of the land of Egypt. This isn't just a small crowd. And they are able to convince the majority of the people that this isn't a good idea. This is bad. This is our very lives that are at stake. The Lord has brought us out here, and He's not going to care for us. He's not going to take care of us. He's, it, this would have been better had we just died back there. We need to appoint a leader. That's where we need to go. We need to go back into bondage. So the unfaithful ended up caving, showing their unfaithfulness, rebelling against the Lord, rebelling against His truth. And these are, these are the very people that saw all that He had done. And their anger was kindled to such an extent that they questioned the goodness of God the character of God, and then they are desirous to stone those who are holding to the truth of God. Because as they're complaining, as they're, they're continuing to grumble and they're saying these things, and it seems as if Moses and Aaron cannot, cannot quiet them down. They can't get them to calm down and to think, so what is it that Moses and Aaron do? In light of everything that's happened before, they bury their face before the Lord. They see catastrophe coming, perhaps. The people are rebelling in mass numbers now. So they fall on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Then Joshua and Caleb come forth. There are two that were in the land, spying it out with the other ten. They come and they say, don't rebel against the Lord. We can do this. We can go up and we can take the land. Why are they so confident? Well, one, they have a different spirit about them. It's said specifically of Caleb, but it would be in reference to Joshua as well. But he says these words, If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into the land which He and, and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, what's he making reference to? He's making reference back, perhaps, to the very words of God to Abraham. When we went over this passage in Genesis chapter 15, how the Lord swore by Himself that He would carry out exactly what He is promising to, to Abraham. He says in verse 15 of chapter 15 of Genesis, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, His descendants. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So the Lord had said to Abraham 400 years prior that a time is coming, your people will come out of this land, but it's going to be in an appointed time because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And then you have Joshua and Caleb that are saying here, 
Their protection has been removed. Their iniquity is complete. It's time. The Lord is with us. And upon hearing these truthful words of Caleb and Joshua, the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's their response. Not to hear the word of the Lord, not to be encouraged by these two faithful men who are saying the truth of God, speaking the truth, believing it. Let's go. Let's go do it. Let's do what the Lord had said. Believe the Lord. No. This is a great rebellion that is taking place here. <clears throat> Those that are supposed to be God's people. Well, you know, this is, this is something that, well, there's a few things in that. One, when we look at passages like this and we see Israel committing the the rebellion that they are, and we, we scratch our heads and we go, how can this be? Now, I have been emphasizing that they've been seeing all these things because the Scripture emphasizes those, that, that very truth. They saw these things and they still did not believe. Why? For one, it is showing us the, the extent of the depravity of man. That even when he sees, he still will not believe. So we've got to be careful, because if it weren't for the grace of God in our own lives, we would do exactly what they did. But that's the truth of the matter. We're no better than these people that we look at and we get aggravated with, and maybe we even entertain those thoughts too. Man, if I had been there, I would have loved to have seen what they saw. But at the same time, if it weren't for the grace of God, uh, being applied to us, had we been there, we would have been saying the same thing. We need to appoint a leader. We need to go back to where it, it's normal for us. You know, the Lord, He's brought us out here. We can't, we can't do this. So we got to be careful. Now, first off, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, because again, if it's not for the grace of God in us, working in our hearts, bringing about the change in us changing our minds and our affections, changing our will, then we would be doing the same thing. You know, when you see something like this as well, it's really very similar to how we, we view things today. I mean, you think of just the 20th century of the church. Now, granted, within the 1800s, you see a number of different cults that are popping up and all of that. But if you look just at the 20th century on into the 21st century, you look at the American church. These supposed to be the covenant people of God. I'm not saying I'm not saying America is the covenant people of God. I'm saying the church in America that is supposed to be the covenant people of God. Just as the people of God are the covenant people regardless of what country they live in. But just looking at America, looking at the 20th century, think about all the things that have happened and the failure of the church to maintain its fidelity to the Lord their God. You come up with a number of different instances with, with the, the charismatic uh, movements that have been coming about throughout the 20th century, the prosperity gospel that's been coming about. You look at how liberalism began to infiltrate uh, the, great, uh, the, the great schools of the early 20th century, like Princeton, for example. 
Liberalism is beginning to creep in. It's not being put in check. you got a number of different movements and offshoots that are coming about. Who's putting them in check? Who's, who's the ones who are out front leading the charge, trying to put these rebellions down, if you will? Because any, any form of removing the truth of God or, or straying from the truth of God is rebellion. You think of the liberation theology that began to come about in the 20th century. You think of the seeker movement. You think of the emergent church movement. There are so many things that you can just look at within the 20th century on in here to the 21st century of aberrations of Orthodox Christianity and who is out there out front putting it in check, calling it out. There are many people now, and granted there were then, but the majority of people are following, it seems as if they're following after these. These new ways of doing things, this innovative church stuff, all of this sort of thing. That the way in which God had said this is the way the church should be, this is the, what the church should believe, well, we want to cave to the world because we fear man more so than we do God. And so the compromising of the church begins, and it just goes further and further and further. You see the unfaithfulness of the Lord, especially within the American church today, which gives us a great example to look at. That the unfaithful cave to the enemy and end up becoming the enemies of the faithful. I mean, if you think about liberalism itself, and you think about how liberalism claims to be of the Lord, the people of God, all of this, but yet, whenever you begin to give the truth of God, and you stand firm on the truth of God, and we do what is written, and we believe what is written, and all of this sort of thing, how quickly you can anger people by just saying, this is what Scripture says. Well, don't impose your morality. It's it's not my morality. It's the Lord's. You claim that you believe in Him. But what ends up happening? Well, we have a better way. We have a way that we can get along with people. We have this. And then they begin to question the goodness of God and the very character of God, especially when you begin to read scriptures that deal with the things of today, whether it's abortion or the LGBT stuff. Well, my God is a God of love. Well, our God who is love has said this. And the most loving thing is to tell the truth. And then the attacks on the very character of God then come by those who claim to know him. So it's something that has happened throughout the history of the church. I'm not just saying it's unique to America. I'm just using it as an example. But what do we do? What is it that we do? How should we respond when we see this kind of thing going on? This is the hard part, because it's easy to get angry and to allow others to influence us to anger in such a way that we compromise who we are in Christ and begin to follow after certain ideas that people like to put forth of how we ought to handle things. The hard part is we need to do exactly what Moses is doing here. After Moses has endured all the things that he has, by this people, as many times as they have grumbled against him, as many times as they have murmured against him specifically, and now they're wanting to stone Joshua and Caleb, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. Moses is going to pray for the people. 
He's not going to pray like we hear often, or perhaps even like we would like to pray at times. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, bring the hammer down. It's time. Get rid of them. Unfaithful rebels who don't know you, who don't believe you, who question your goodness, just get rid of them. It would be better if they were absent rather than continuing on. That's how we think. You know, it's, um, it, it's very disheartening, you know, at times when you, when you hear people say things like what I'm getting ready to say, but, uh, you, you know, it's not to say that they're, they're big sinners because they say things like this, and we've all been guilty, perhaps, of saying it as well. But especially when you see things going on in the Middle East and, and especially holding to a, a premillennial view of things, when you begin to see things happening, then uh, maybe it's a source of excitement maybe that the coming of the Lord might be close or whatever. And we see all that going on uh, with the enemies of Israel and all this. And we say, yes, Lord, come on, bring it on. Let's do this. Wipe them out. Bring in, bring in the coming of Christ. But what we don't do, and what we should do, is to pray on behalf of others, even for the enemies of God. To intercede on their behalf. To pray for their salvation. To pray that the Lord would be patient with them a little while longer. That they would have another opportunity, if the Lord wills. Intercessory prayer is not just praying on behalf of people that you love. People that are good to you. Or people that are Christians. Often intercessory prayer is praying on behalf of those who don't know God, who are enemies of God. The thing about intercessory prayer, sometimes we might look at that and we say, does it even do anything? I mean, here we are, we're on a small scale here. We're just, you know, maybe the minority, the faithful people of God, if we look at it this way. We're just, we're just a minority in this entire country the, the mass majority of everybody is in rebellion. How can any prayer that we offer be effective at all? When it's on this kind of a scale. Well, look at Moses. One guy. One man. Who intercedes on behalf of possibly, again going up to the high numbers, a million to two million people. Does that mean that all of them are in rebellion? No, but apparently a good portion of them were. And because Moses is going to intercede on their behalf, the Lord is going to pardon the people. Now, if you think about, well, how can that be within, within our day? This is Moses. If you remember what James says, we talk about prayer. We talk about praying on behalf of others, but... James 
helps us to put things a little bit more in perspective when we talk about prayer. He says in chapter 5, we'll jump in verse 12, read down a few of these verses. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, in the context, it's not, it's not that the person who is sick is calling for the elders so that they can all pray together for healing. The implication of what James is saying here is that perhaps this person is sick because of sins that they have committed in their life. And what is necessary in this instance is not just for them to pray, but it is to have the elders to pray, to intercede on their behalf for the sin that they have committed, asking the Lord to pardon and for the Lord to heal. You think of Job, the end of Job is another instance in which we have intercessory prayer. After all of the things that Job's friends have said and how they have questioned the character of God or misunderstood the character of God, in Job 42, beginning of verse 7, it says, It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I have accepted him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So what is required here is that Job pray on behalf of his friends, because the Lord's anger is kindled against them. But because of the prayer of Job, the effective prayer of a righteous man, it accomplished much in the Lord pardoning. Does that mean that the Lord pardons their sins and all that? No. If we think of pardoning in this kind of a way, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So does Stephen. When Stephen's being stoned, don't hold this to their charge. So it's not as if it's, to pray for them is automatically going to pardon all their sins and they're going to be converted. But the specific offense, perhaps, that is against the Lord, the Lord may pardon that particular offense in that sense of not holding it against them because somebody interceded on their behalf. So when you think of the instance in which Jesus prayed, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, 
these unregenerate men that have nailed him to a cross, that are mocking him, that are taking his garments, that this particular charge would not be held against them. So there's a number of instances that we find of intercessory prayer. And it is something that is needful for the people of God to do, to pray on behalf of those that don't know God. Instead of praying that the Lord would judge them or praying that prayer that uh, I think got really, really popular back in around 2012, let his days be few and let another take his office. Instead of praying things like this, why don't we pray, Oh Lord, have mercy, show compassion to him, convert his heart. Demonstrate your power among someone like that. And when I say someone like that, I'm not saying any different than us. I'm saying someone in that kind of a position of power and influence. Those are the things we should be praying for. It's hard. Because that natural emotion in us is to do the complete opposite. But we should be praying on behalf of the people we should be praying on behalf of the church that has rebelled against the Lord here in America. Again, as we have said a number of times, if you think about the American church as a whole, it's a joke. The American church is a joke. That's why, as I've told you before, when Dr. Joel Beakey back in the 90s had went over to what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and the few Christians that he had talked to in this specific town or city there were only just a few that were converted. Just a few, a handful. And they would tell Dr. Beakey, this is what happens. They come, they arrest us, they beat us, they hold us for a couple days, they let us go. They come, they arrest us, they beat us, they hold us for a couple days, they let us go. So Dr. Beakey says, well, how can I pray for you? What can I pray? And the man said to Dr. Dr. Beakey, pray that the persecution does not stop. He says, what do you mean by that? He said, pray that it doesn't stop. Because we don't want here what you have in America. That's a serious indictment on the church. And their explanation of that was the lines are too blurred. Over here we know who are the faithful of God and who aren't. The American church is in crisis. And so instead of praying for the liberal ones to move out, die off, or whatever, we need to be praying for their salvation. For those that are in the prosperity gospel, that are the big leaders, and how angry we get because of, of how they misrepresent the, the work of Christ and, and the ridiculous theology that they come off with, we should be praying for their conversion. Look at what Moses does here. As Moses is going to intercede on behalf of the people, he appeals to the Lord in two particular areas. So the Lord says to Moses that in spite of all the signs which he performed in their midst, they still spurn him. He says in verse 12, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, 
For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, the Lord takes one swipe, annihilates them. Then the nations who have heard of you, have heard of your fame, will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land, which he promised by an oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. So the first thing that Moses petitions the Lord with is, what are the nations going to say? And in each of these things that Moses is bringing up to the Lord, he's not even pointing to the fact of anything that the people have done necessarily. He's bringing everything back to the Lord himself. What are the nations going to say? You couldn't bring this people in there? You brought them out by a mighty hand and you couldn't bring them in? What will the nations say? So what's he petitioning? By your mighty power, show who you are. Show your strength. Show your might by carrying out exactly what you said you would do. Then here's what Moses does. Now remember, back in chapter 32 of Exodus that we went over, when Moses had prayed, Lord, show me your glory, and the Lord says to Moses, I will make all my goodness to pass before you. And then as the Lord does pass by, he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, showing loving kindness to thousands, all of this language. Moses is going to bring that right back up to the Lord here. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your loving kindness, that has said love, that covenant love, that loyal love, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So he petitions the Lord. First off, what are the nations going to say? Show them who you are. The second thing that he says is your very character is to be gracious, to show loving kindness to this covenant people that you have called by your name. So he's, he's petitioning the Lord with the very attributes that the Lord had said previously to him. And Moses brings it right back up. Lord, you are compassionate. You are gracious. Based on your character. That you told me. Pardon this people. You've already been doing it. From Egypt even until now. These are the two specifics that Moses brings up to the, to the Lord. Now, then we need to step back just for a moment and to understand this. Did the Lord get angry enough at this particular point that he really was going to annihilate this people? Did he change his mind? That's the question. 
<clears throat> well, as R.C. Sproul says, prayer doesn't change the Lord's mind. But if you ask the question, does prayer change things? The answer is yes, absolutely. Remember this. The Lord had already promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bring their descendants into this land. He had already made a prophecy through Jacob on when Jacob is getting ready to die that the Messiah is coming through Judah. Not through Levi. He's coming through Judah. So was the Lord then just going to forget everything that he said previously and annihilate everybody and start off and start over with just the tribe of Levi or a member of the tribe of Levi? Hmm. But if we look at this whole scenario again, these kinds of instances really help us to understand the very character of God when sin occurs and the emotion of God when it occurs, that it grieves him. It, he's not pleased with it. He's not a stoic being that just is emotionless when everything happens. He is grieved. He doesn't take pleasure in sin. None of this. And when we look at God's sovereignty, how He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass so that everything that occurs is always plan A. It's never plan B. God has not, or, not only ordained the end, but He's also ordained the means in which He carries things out. And the amazing part of all of that is, is that the means in which God has ordained in order to carry out much of His will, at least in many instances that we see within the Scripture and how we ourselves are told to pray, is by prayer. Was it decreed that Moses would intercede on behalf of the people? Absolutely. And through the prayer of Moses being offered on behalf of the people, then the Lord pardons the people. So the situation did change because Moses interceded. The Lord didn't change his mind because the Lord is absolute perfection. But again, if we're looking at it in this kind of a, this, this sense that he's ordained the end, but he's ordained the means in which the end is brought about. And that's through the prayers of his people, through using his people as his instruments in his hand. That's the amazing thing. When you think about people that are brought to faith, uh, either by the prayer of God's people or by the, the testifying of the gospel, that God is using mere creatures in order to bring about the salvation of others. To be used in the hand of the Lord in such a way. That's amazing. That the Lord would do that. But that's what, it, that's what Moses is doing. Interceding on behalf of the Lord and the Lord using the prayer of Moses decreed from all eternity to then pardon the people that have rebelled against him. We will save the rest of this chapter for next Wednesday as there is still uh, other things, of course, to, to talk about. And to go over. But just for what we've learned tonight. One, we need to understand people do what they do because they're sinners. They do what is natural to them, which is to sin. They're inclined towards wickedness. It should never come as a surprise when you have the unfaithful being unfaithful to the Lord. 
It should never be a surprise seeing what sinners do in rebellion against the Lord because that's their natural tendency. That's why they need the gospel preached to them. That's why they need people praying for them. That perhaps the Lord in his mercy might use us according to his will if that's his purpose in order that others could be brought to faith to pray on their behalf, to intercede for them, to have a heart for them. It shouldn't just be that we have this this stone-cold kind of a a perception of things or or this this character about us when it comes to the unbelieving. But our hearts should be melted to say, that could be me if the Lord had not sent someone to me. So we need to have a heart for the lost. Not to be influenced in order to compromise who we are in Christ, but to remain faithful, to remain steadfast, to hold fast to the truth, to pray on behalf of others, and to pray back to the Lord the very things that we know are true of Him as we intercede on behalf of others. There's more to say, of course, but we will stop there and we will pick this back up uh, next Wednesday evening. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you that instead of showing us justice for our rebellion, you showed us mercy. Thank you that you are indeed a compassionate God, that you are truly slow to anger, that you are long-suffering, and that you put up with us in our rebellion. Father, thank you for extending your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus giving his life, Father, that that we may have peace with us and you. Thank you that he took our punishment and he satisfied your justice against us. Thank you for his imputed righteousness to us that brings us into your favor. All that he did. Nothing on our own behalf did we accomplish anything. It was all him. Thank you for that mercy which was not merited. Oh Father, let us let us have mercy on others. Let us have compassion on others and show that same character that you've shown us to others. Help us to have a heart for those that are lost. And to be even more motivated. Father, to intercede on their behalf, knowing that, Father, you have ordained the means by which others are brought to faith, primarily through the preaching of the gospel and by praying on behalf of others. Help us to be faithful in doing so, that you would be honored in our lives. Thank you again for all that you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for your attention, and you are dismissed.